This is Jared Blumenfeld. Welcome to Podshipper. Today's show is about two very different sides of resiliency. Resiliency is the single most important trait that will help us navigate the fast approaching threat to our civilization. This week, we'll go to the bottom of the Grand Canyon to talk with Rochelle Toulouse from the Havasupai Environmental Protection Agency, and we'll go to the streets of Berkeley, California, to hear from Sarah Schubert and Eli Whipple about becoming urban van dwellers. By the time of the European invasions, indigenous peoples had occupied and shaped every part of the Americas and were sustaining their population by adapting to specific natural environments. Native populations in the Americas were reduced from 100 million to 10 million following the early onset of colonization. By the end of the 1800s, there were fewer than 240,000 indigenous people remaining in what is now the United States. Today, there are 2.1 million native people belonging to 566 federally recognized tribes, which is a long way from being on the brink of extinction 120 years ago. This is a story of recovery. Today's indigenous nations are communities formed by their resistance to colonialism, throughout which they've carried on their practices, traditions, and histories. This resiliency is key to their survival. In fact, resilience is required by anyone who wishes to survive. Today, Indian communities are nations within a nation. Without a doubt, the rise of American Indian tribal nations has not been easy. Many native communities continue to be burdened by extremely high levels of poverty, unemployment, and chronic health challenges. But against all this adversity, Indians have learned to move forward, to believe and weave a dream of old and new. This is the tenacity of the indigenous spirit. I arrived at the Havasupai Nation on foot after hiking eight miles into the Grand Canyon. As you know, I love hiking. It was this journey in particular that motivated me to do the Pacific Crest Trail. The hike down to Havasupai is spectacular. It starts with switchbacks from which you can see for 100 miles. The orange rocks cascade down into a riverbed that weaves through the Havasupai village. I remember breathing in the morning air, walking along thinking, this is my life and I'm living it. I smiled, not even knowing where that thought came from, but feeling that for the first time in a long time, I knew who I was. As you approach Havasupai, you first hear, then glimpse the rushing iridescent turquoise water. The 700 members of the community all speak Havasupai. Thousands of tourists flock to Havasupai each year to see some of the world's most spectacular waterfalls. As you walk down towards the Colorado River, the intensity of the beauty is overwhelming. It really does feel like heaven on earth. Permits are required and are very restricted. You can't hike down without one, so give yourself at least six months of lead time. I recently got to share this adventure with my family, who were experiencing Havasupai for the first time. During the trip, I got to catch up with Rochelle Toulouse, who's the director of the Havasupai Environmental Protection Agency. Hi, Rochelle. Welcome to Podship Earth. Hi, thank you. For people who don't know anything about Havasupai, tell us a little bit about where we are and what it means to you. 
Oh, uh, well, Havasu Pie Reservation is located at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, one of the seven natural wonders of the world. And it's very remote. Uh, we only have a small general store, a cafeteria. And uh, the only way to get here is by horseback, eight miles down the trail, walking, or a five-minute helicopter ride. When I looked at the Grand Canyon, I was like, oh my God, this is my home. This is where I live. And every day you look at the canyon and it's different. It's like a whole new painting you see every day with the colors and the sunset, the sunrises. During the summers, I'd spend my summers swimming in the creek all day, every day. It was just so wonderful in the winter. Wow, I'd be in school, but I'd still want to go swimming. How long have you lived in Havasupai? I've lived here for 33 years, my whole life. So one of the things that you noticed when I was sitting outside the general store is how many people speak Supai still. And tell us a little bit, do you speak? How, how is it seems such an important part mm -hmm. of the tradition? Yes, um, I do speak Havasupai. Uh, Havasupai was the first language that I spoke. Um, and then once I got into Head Start, that's when they started teaching us the English language. At home, we speak our language. Nowadays, I teach my six-year-old daughter how to speak Havasupai too. Yeah, so um, I try to keep that going. So tell us a little bit about what it means to be native in 2018. It feels great. I actually am proud that I am Havasupai, I'm Native American. Um, I'm very proud that our tribe is continuing our cultures and our traditions. We're trying to still keep that going within our own community, teaching the younger kids that um, you don't have to be ashamed to be Native American. And how do you do that with your six-year-old daughter? When she's watching TV and she doesn't see good images or any images of Native Americans, how do you help her feel strong and proud? Uh, we help her feel strong and proud by also showing her uh, Native American books, telling her that we are Havasupai, that we are different from the outside world. She does see the difference and know the difference because the teachers some of them aren't Native American as well, and they come from different nationalities. So she's noticing that. And she asks, why are they different? Why am I different from them? How come I speak Havasupai and they don't understand that I'm speaking Havasupai? So my fiance and I, we try to explain to her that being Native American is very special. You know, um, we tried to explain to her about what had happened to the Native American people in the past. But um, sometimes on TV, she sees it and she's like, how come they're treating the Native Americans bad? You mm. know, because sometimes we do watch Native American movies. But um, we tried to explain to her that was in the past. Uh, we try not to in introduce her to hatred towards other nationalities as well. And uh, we're keeping the tradition alive with her because my dad is a traditionalist. Mm. So he's one of uh, Havasupai tribal members who still knows our songs, our um, stories, the history behind um, how we came to be here inside the canyon, you know. So she's learning a lot from my father. Uh, my sister and I both still dance our traditional dances. So we're teaching our children how to talk supai, how to sing the songs, how to um, know where we came from, our background. I feel very fortunate to have my dad in my life mm. and my dad be my dad. What role does the environment play for the Havasupai people? 
Well, from the stories that my dad does tell us um, about how we came to be here in the canyon um, is that it's very important to us. It's very sacred because this is our homeland. And at one point uh, before before Supai became Supai, the story is that the canyon would close, like it would open and mm. then close. And you could see from above that there was a like a small village in here with trees, with the water going through it. But it was so beautiful that no man could come in, no animal could come in, that it was like the canyon was protecting Supai. So it would close, it would open, it would close, it would open. And in the story, there are two twin warriors who um, came to be from San Francisco Peaks, the water and the sun. So we are called the Havasu Pie, which also means Havasu, which is blue-green to the water, you know, blue-green waters, turquoise. So um, that's how the boys came to be. And I know that they went to California and cut down redwood. Yeah, and they cut that down and they brought it here because they tried to figure out how they could leave the canyon opened so that they could come in. Um, they also saw this uh, special tree that you could use to make bow and arrows. And they wanted those trees so that they could make bow and arrows so they could hunt. So they brought down that tree and they threw it when it opened inside the canyon. And once it started to close, the redwood kept it from closing. Hmm. So my dad tells me on a very special day during... Um, a certain time of the year in the winter that if you look closely enough, you can see part of the redwood tree in the canyon still holding it open. Do you feel connected to the land? Traditionally, when we have our children, we're also supposed to keep everything that is born with that child, including the umbilical cord. And so once that child turns a year old, the father of the child will make um, a hike up to a certain part of the canyon where he gathers this uh, red, very fine powder of rock and um, they grind it into fine powder and then they mix it with the water along with the umbilical cord and we circle it around the infant when they turn one first starting to take their first steps. And once we circle it around the child, that means this child is connected to the canyon for the rest of its life. No matter where that child ends up, this will always be its home. You know, it's always going to be a part of the canyon. So I was initiated when I turned one as well. So my dad says I'm always going to be a part of this canyon no matter what. No, it doesn't matter where I end up. This will always be my home. So living here, I mean, you you have to think about everything differently yes. um the name of the the show is podship earth and havasupai is like podship earth it's its own little community mm-hmm. that isn't attached by a road mm-hmm. very few communities in our country that are like that so this acts like its own little planet you need to look after the water you need to look after the land and the air mm-hmm. and that's your job that's a big job mm-hmm. rochelle how, what do you what do you do day to day? What are the things? How do you work with community members? Trying to keep our home looking nice, looking clean. We do have the school that takes a big part in wanting to learn how to keep Sufi clean, and we tell the community it's for the children. You know, so some parents do get involved too, and and it's wonderful when we can get 
at least about maybe 50 people involved to help with cleanups. Is there a a special significance that water has for the tribe and for your work? Like I said, in one of the creation stories, the Havasupai people came to be through a drop of spring water and the sunshine coming into the the woman who gave birth to the Havasupai people. So um, it does mean a lot to us. The water is very sacred to our tribe. Um, And for the Environmental Protection Department, we just want to keep it safe, make sure that little children are still able to swim in it during the summer vacations. Uh, Visitors are able to come and enjoy the creek, you know, uh, also drinking the natural spring water that comes through at the campgrounds. We try to keep that safe and drinkable. So one of the things, my daughter and I, when we walked in, uh, we picked up all the trash that tourists had dropped. We got about 75 bottles and cans. This is a sacred place. Don't be throwing your trash. It's really, I couldn't believe it. I was really offended. If they're coming here to hike, they need to, what do they need to do? Respect our home. We've been speaking to Rochelle Toulousey. Thank you so much, Rochelle, for your time and all your work. You're amazing. Thank you, and thank you for listening. And now a word from this week's sponsor, Design Crowd. There are a few great movies that presciently depict the current clusterfuck in which we find ourselves. Mike Judge's Idiocracy is off the charts awesome. Being there with Peter Sellers, Team America World Police, The Clockwork Orange, and American Psycho, in which Christian Bale is a yuppie by day and serial killer by night. Here's one of my favorite scenes in which Bale's character, Patrick Bateman, is showing off his new business card. New card. What do you think? Whoa. Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman, but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. (laughs) That is really super. How do nitwit like you get so tasteful? (laughs) He raises an important question. How can a nitwit, basically someone like me, be so tasteful? See, the worst crime Patrick committed in American Psycho wasn't murder. It was failing to use Design Crowd. Design Crowd lets you crowdsource logos, websites, print, and graphic designs from professionals worldwide. When Pocket Earth was just a silly idea, okay, yes, it probably still is. Well, anyway, when I had more time on my hands, I started thinking of logo designs. I thought I was on the right track, but Cousin David suggested that my scribbles didn't pass muster. As with about 5% of things that David says, he was right. He then asked if I'd heard about Design Crowd. Their website was super intuitive, so I guess David's right more than 5% of the time. I signed on and launched my project. I input the task description and deadline. I received 121 designs from 37 designers from around the world. It was an amazing experience to be able to see so many different takes on my idea, and each one gave me a better sense of what I wanted. Eventually, I found a design that spoke to me. It was by Kent from Art Tank. We emailed each day and refined the logo until it was perfect. I've worked with many, many high-end design firms over the years, and it's really hard to get the right fit the first or even the second time around. It's also intimidating and expensive. 
The funnest part of Design Crowd is that you get to pick and choose before making a decision. It's crowdsourcing at its very best. Whether it's the business card that Patrick Bateman should have ordered in American Psycho, or the logo for your kid's soccer team t-shirts, or the website design that you've always dreamed of launching, check out designcrowd.com podship to save up to $100 when you start your next project. That's right, designcrowd.com podship, or simply enter the discount code podship when posting a project on Design Crowd. There are few things as cool as looking in your inbox and seeing all these amazing designs competing to meet your approval. I had a blast using Design Crowd, and I think you will too. Give it a try. Growing up in England, there were three American TV programs we watched. Happy Days, Starsky and Hutch, and Scooby-Doo. All my earliest insights into American culture derive from these classic shows. Most enduring of all has been my love of Scooby's van the mystery machine. So when Brenna suggested that we meet up with friends of hers that are living the hashtag van life, I simply couldn't resist. As you'll hear from Sarah and Eli, they're having an urban camping adventure every day while saving money and maybe even saving the planet. Brenna, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So we are in a sprinter van in a secret location in Berkeley. We're here with two people that moved into their fans at different times. We'll find out when. Eli, welcome. Hello. And Sarah. Hi, how's it going? Good. How long have you been living in your vehicles? Mm, I moved into my truck probably about five, coming on six years ago. What was the impetus? What led you to think you wanted to live in a truck? Uh, well, I made a bunch of big life decisions all at once. Uh, I dropped out of college. I broke up with my long-term partner and uh, also was having to leave the house that I was in anyway. And so all those things combined, I wanted to just do things a little differently than I had been because none of it was working for me. And what about you, Sarah? So my one-year anniversary was about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Okay. And, and maybe staying with Sarah, so what, what has the first year been like? Uh, I mean, it's a big learning process for sure. Um, like one of the yeah great and awful things about living in a van is that it is a project that never ends. It's really um, interesting to do like to experiment with learning how to build stuff and new making methods on your house. Uh, like uh, I think a few weeks, a, a while after I'd moved into my van, I, I installed the fan on the on the roof. One of my favorite moments ever of sta- ba- like balancing precariously on my roof with an angle grinder that I almost never used before, uh, learning how to cut holes in the, my house. Um, so this is the first anniversary of you being in the van. Do you imagine a year from now you'll still be living in a van? If I if I stay in the Bay Area, then yeah, I definitely see myself in a van for the like foreseeable future. Um, this looks like a pretty new Sprinter van. Yeah, it's a 2016. So what were the, tell us about the economics of how you decided to buy it. So as far as vehicle living platforms go, the Sprinters are my absolute favorite. Um, There's a lot of reasons for that. They get good gas mileage. I'm getting 20 plus miles per gallon in a big rig like this. It's good. Uh, They're um, generally reliable, um, but they are expensive, right? Like, so this is a $40,000 van new. 
even brand new, the Sprinter is cheaper than rent around here. I mean, you if you get a terrible interest rate and you have no down payment, this is seven fifty a month for this van. And and Eli, what what do people think of you when you t- do you tell people? Does it come up in conversation? How how do you get into? I live in a van. Like, does it come up with dates? Do you want to come back to my van? <laughs> um, yeah. So when I first moved into my truck, uh, so I was in Asheville, North Carolina, when I first moved into a vehicle, and there, it's not a lot of people are doing it. I mean, the weather is not great. Like, it's really cold. Um, the police will totally harass you. There's not a whole lot of great places to park. And since there was nobody around me doing it, I felt pretty weird about it. And so at first I was pretty averse to telling people I uh, feared some sort of judgment from them that maybe they would uh, get some false impression of me because I I did it out of choice financially. What kind of reactions have you gotten? I was surprised everyone was kind of into it. Like, oh, this is like an awesome thing you got going on. Like, I love this rig. Honestly, most people were just pretty enthusiastic. What about you, Sarah? What about your parents? I haven't actually told my parents yet. Okay. Uh, Well, parents, welcome. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah no, it's great. Coming so, out on Podshipath. I appreciate that, Sarah. Yeah, no, I'm going to send them the link. It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> what do you want your parents to know? When I moved into my van, I had a, a, a long-term partner um, who was like very fundamentally opposed to it. Uh, he was really upset that I was doing this because he felt like I, I needed help and wasn't letting him rescue me. But I didn't tell my parents because I didn't want them thinking that I needed to be rescued, that I was in trouble because I'm not I'm not in trouble. Uh, so I, I thoroughly intend to have that conversation with my parents. I intended to have it last time I saw them in person because it's a nicer conversation to have in person. Tell us about the non-financial reasons that kind of tipped you over the edge to to living in the van. People in the people in the bay complain about two things. They complain about uh, the cost of rent and the commute. Uh, van life does a pretty good job of getting rid of both of those. That's that's really nice. My commute has been spectacular ever since. Um, it's really nice to be able to, you know, go out to events and just crash in your van right after, not have to like find a way to get home that's safe. Um, there's a lot to be said for being able to take it out on a road trip and just, like, just fucking go. What kind of van do you have, Sarah? Uh, I have a 1986 Vanagon. It's like a very small Switzer van. It's a, it's like an old passenger van. We just passed a whole group of RVs. Is that a different community of people, the RV people versus the truck and van people? I wouldn't say it's a different community, but they're a hell of a lot less subtle. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live in an RV here. Why not? I like I like at least thinking that I uh, blend in that I, I people don't know that I'm that there's likely someone in that in that vehicle right now sleeping at night. See, I have never met anyone who's thought about moving into a van, so that's why I'm kind of intrigued. Brenna, she was at my house. She was like, I know three people who live in their vans or trucks. Make that five. Yeah, okay, no five. Yeah. Um. Yes, I know five people at least who have chosen to live in their vehicles for non-financial reasons. So we've got two of them here. Got two of them here. Place I used to work. um, Which was an environmental organization. Yes, indeed. A renewable energy company. A lot of people chose to live in their vehicles. So Um, I I guess the point that I'm making is when I told people I want to do an episode on people living in their vans, they're like, what the fuck's that got to do with the environment? But all the people that you know happen to be environmentalists. And one of the things that Sarah already pointed out 
is you don't need to commute. So as young environmentalists, you might not be able to do the work you're doing and live in the Bay Area if it wasn't for a van. I mean, there are, uh, you know, thousands of people who live here who have minimum wage jobs, you know, working at the cafes at Google. We really are developing that class system where um, the service workers work largely out of vans. I know that there's a there's a street in Google, um, like in the main Google campus, the RV street, um, where tons of Google employees, programmers, cooks and guys who drive the buses, they all live there. Even even above minimum wage in South Bay is is below the poverty line, essentially. Yeah, that makes sense. I have friends who live in San Francisco who work at Apple and Google and Facebook, and the thing that they dislike the most is the commute. So you guys have come out with a solution, a zero commute. You can live very close to where you work. I imagine it also does feel really hard to justify your like environmental job, your the company that you go to every day if you spend two hours stall like in an idling car on your way there. It turned out that my carbon footprint was one-fourth that of the average American, with me being a completely irresponsible vehicle dweller. Mm. Footprint would seem minimal. Yeah, it's very small. So how do you get how do you get power, both of you? You can't like plug your your car into something uh, when you park. It's, it makes a whole lot of sense to install solar panels on your roof, logistically and financially. And how, so it's probably like 20 square feet of roof space. So how, how much, what does that power, what, what, what do you use the power for and how much power do you need? Yeah, I know at least two other people who are, who are doing the like full, uh, top of the van coverage. He's able to power a heater. Uh, he has this really intense built-in sound system, uh, fan, uh, lights, a bunch of other things, uh, everything but the AC. What about eating? Do you eat in here? Is that? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I exist a lot in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll find me often at Whole Foods, at the, you know, eating from the hot bar or something that, or in a cafe or at work. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? Uh, I have a little propane stove that I use, um, mostly for making coffee in the morning, because it's really nice to get up in the morning and like, I don't know, not immediately go to a cafe or something, just brew your cup of coffee by the at your oceanfront property. Uh, yeah, if you want to, if you get a spot by the the bay or something, um, which is another plus, right? Yeah, you get to be in some pretty beautiful places yeah. that most people don't have. Where we are right now on the bay, yeah, no one lives here, but it's stunning. You you can get the some of the most expensive possible property in anywhere in San Francisco or East Bay or anything like that for free. It's pretty great as long as you watch out for the street sweepers. I'm curious about your um, your connection with your environment, built environment, natural environment, other people, animals living in your vehicle. I mean, it's different to be in a car. You're a little closer to everything around you than you are in a house. You're more separated. I hear less human stuff going on in my vehicle. Um, I'm in much a lot more control where I sleep at night. And so when you have your noisy neighbors, you always have your noisy neighbors. When you have your obnoxious housemates, you're always listening to them. and It's always going on. Um, and I mean, sometimes there is a thinner veil between myself and the in the public sphere being in a vehicle, depending on where you park. But other times, it's absolutely you know isolating in a nice way. And Sarah, you know, do you feel comfortable? Would you recommend it for other women? Is it a mainly male community? Yeah, it's it's interesting to think of it as a community. I have the longer I've been in the Bay, met more and more people who uh, 
who live out of choose to live out of their vehicles and who like associate themselves together because of it. Um, but like I, I haven't really interacted much with a, a community of van dwellers. And I, I imagine that there are van dwelling communities. It's just for I think for myself and the people that I know that live in vehicles, that isn't the basis at which we know other people. That's not what we share in common. You should go check out the people that are living in the strip over here because they're yeah. there. They park next to each other every day for months on end. I imagine they know each other and they have a sort of neighborly relationship. Yeah. You talked about your last partner was like vehemently against you living in the van. When you have future partners, is that a first question that you would ask someone? I just want to let you know I live in a van. I, I hope you're going to be chill with that. Yeah, well, there was definitely like... Uh... A few months ago, I went out with somebody who was who's not like who didn't already know me. Was, and I felt weirdly like I had to apologize for a bunch of things at the beginning of the date. I was like, so just just so you know, I'm getting this out there. I'm like, I'm vegetarian. I live in a van. Like I went home and thought about it. I was like, oh, that was dumb. I'm not apologizing for any of those things anymore. Um, but yeah, it does come up reasonably quickly when I know people just because it has a, a sizable impact on my daily life. How common do you think it is? Is this is it growing? Is it like? Well, I would say that um, you've got some different financial classes in the Bay Area. You've got the uh, tent dwellers, uh, which I would maybe say is like the lower class, if you will, and then we uh, the the middle class are all the vehicle dwellers, uh, and then of course you've got your um, housed people, who I'd say are <laughs> upper middle upper class upper yeah middle the one percenters yeah absolutely like, yeah. <laughs> and so I do think it's growing because um, so the 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 van is the new middle class house in the Bay, yeah. When I think of something going really wrong, it's like the shit hitting the fan. I think I'd want to live in this van, right? Doesn't like as a survivalist instinct, whether it's an earthquake or a forest fire or a mudslide, these aren't things of our imagination. They all happened in the last year in California. You can drive away from those. Um, certainly forest fires, for instance, you're not you're you're not stuck in a place being mobile is actually a big advantage i agree i feel like there's a resiliency in that freedom we have more security than a lot of the people that like i'm worried are moving into their vehicles very much not from a a place of choice like the the fact that san francisco and the rest of the bay area is definitely getting more and more uh like accepting a van dwelling, I'm both thrilled and really upset about it because I'm afraid that if we normalize this too much, it really will be middle-class people are forced to live this type of lifestyle, which works really well for me, but does not work well for a lot of people. So that's a really important point though that you're raising, which is the one of choice. This is a choice for both of you, for people who for economic reasons want to live in a house but feel forced to live in their van. It's a very different psychological impact. Yeah. Culturally, we all think that we need to live in houses. I mean, it's illegal to do what I'm doing. You're not allowed to sleep in your vehicle on public land. Um, sleeping in your vehicle on the street is illegal. Um, and, so, and so the choice that's presented is living in a house. And so I think that there are also people who are living in houses that are less happy for it. And okay. what about the age group of people you see moving into their vans? Is it varied? I don't see a whole lot of older people coming out of vans in the morning, but um, I'd say it's a lot of people in their like mid twenties to early thirties. When you say I don't see a lot of older people coming out of their vans in the morning, does that mean you do see a lot of younger people coming out of their vans in the morning? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and how does that manifest itself? I've never seen anyone come out of their van. 
it's really obvious when you know what you're looking for. Okay. Uh, it's like uh, I'd never heard of a Sprinter van uh, until I hung out, uh, like, hung out in the bay, and then I saw them everywhere. It's really weird for a commercial vehicle to be that popular in residential areas. You know, you know I what's like going it. on. If you go very far out of the bay, I mean, you will get harassed by police. There are towns that you have to accept that they're going to come knocking. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you don't answer, of course, because uh, you don't have to, and you shouldn't. But they will actually bug you in some places. Is there different search and seizure rules for a house than there would be a van? Like when you said the police come knocking, do they get to say, oh, your taillight's broken, so we're, we're going to look in your vehicle? No, it's very similar. Um, the police are kind of like vampires. You know, If you invite them in, it's all over. Nice. Uh, so it's good to uh, not answer. You don't have to let them in. They might threaten to tow you, but actually the tow company can't tow you with, in the, with yourself in the vehicle. They can't force your locked things open yeah including your van what about the toilet as far as bathroom like i choose to be pretty minimalistic about that i've got a gender agnostic urinal that allows that um and it, mine's mine's set up that if it's like an emergency number two situation if you need that i've had like that problem before where mm. your asshole is going to explode and there's nothing <laughs> you can do about it right um it's really That's embarrassing part of living yeah, it's, yeah, it's really yeah, embarrassing to shit on the, uh, on, on the sidewalk. Yeah, you've got a vindaloo. You just don't want to. <laughs> you need to go to the loo. Yep. Um, but I also like, but a lot of the RVs have like toilet type toilets. Mm. I mean, they do. And you can have a whole black water and gray water system. Um, and you can set those things up. Usually they're mounted to the bottom of the vehicle or, or out of the way. I want to know about some other lifestyle choices. So, I mean, a lot of people want to be doing something that's good for the world and they have to make a concession because they need housing and housing security. Like no, living in a van, like no, awesome. it gives you enormous freedom to uh, make those sort of choices. Some of my friends, particularly who live in Seattle, have moved into boats as well. It's really popular these days as a similar option. They did it for the exact same reasons. Like my one of my friends was trying to join an environmental company up in Seattle and couldn't afford it and her student debt. So she moved into a boat. With her boyfriend. And what's the number one reason that people move out of their vans? I haven't actually met anyone who's moved out yet. Yeah, so far I only know people who have upgraded from cars to vans. Do you have any questions for Brenna and I about what it's like to live in a house? <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long. I started dating somebody in, um, in Massachusetts and I went to go visit them. I went to their house and I realized I hadn't been in a residential building for over six months. Wow. Like, for any reason whatsoever. I... I'm generally completely disconnected from that world. I find it totally alien. I I, I'm I, house sitting this week. It feels like a luxury in the uh, in the same way that like when you go on vacation, it, it's super fun. But I look forward to going back to my van when I'm done. So Brenna, are you having heard this? So we we were camping. We were out. It was a little rougher than this, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, it was a tent, but not that much different. Yeah, similar. Does this appeal to you? Like, you're paying a lot of rent. Yeah, this definitely appeals to me. I'm listening and taking notes here. Like, what would be the biggest impediment? Like, when you hear this, like, you're in a... How much are you paying now in rent? 900 which is a great deal. This appeals to me. It's just... It's a big project. So taking that on takes time, I think, for me and my skill level. And these are engineers and... This is their favorite hobby. I have a question, though, about creature comforts. Like, are there certain things that you miss living here? Eli, you've been here a while, um, so maybe you're completely used to it, but either of you? I really miss having a kitchen. I love cooking. So do you, do you guys have 
uh, names for your vans. <laughs> uh, you're, we're, we're currently uh, holding this interview in uh, what is known as the Snuggle Bus. It has been colloquially uh, uh, dubbed the, the Snuggle Bus, partly because I optimized it for snuggling. It's a huge bed. I can fit three people for a comfortable night's sleep, which was very deliberate. Hmm. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Snuggle Bus and Eli and Sarah and Brenna for hosting this. This has been awesome. Thank you for doing it. It was very fun. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm so grateful that this week we were able to explore two very different sides of resiliency with Rochelle, Eli, Sarah, and Brenna. Thank you. One of the most significant environmental campaigns of the last decade was the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline by the Standing Rock Sioux, which started back in 2016. Here's Tribal Chair Dave Archambault explaining the struggle at the United Nations. I am here because oil companies are causing the deliberate destruction of our sacred places and burials. Dakota Access Pipeline wants to build an oil pipeline under the river that is the source of our nation's drinking water. This pipeline threatens our communities, the river, and the earth. This battle brought together Indigenous tribal members and their allies from across the nation and the globe. The Standing Rock campaign unified American Indians by bringing attention to the sacredness of the earth. Trump, in one of his first anti-environmental actions, intervened to make sure that the pipeline was built and the first oil was delivered back in May 2017. Since then, a court found that the project's environmental review was, no surprises, deficient because the impacts of an oil spill on fishing rights, hunting rights, and environmental justice were not adequately covered. The judge ordered a new risk report be completed, but unfortunately, he didn't shut down the pipeline. You can help this and other Native environmental campaigns by checking out the Indigenous Environmental Network, ienearth.org, ienearth.org. What I took away from talking with Rochelle was her sense of belonging. The Havasupai people's connection to the land and water is unbreakable. It's a bond that exists in all of us that we can help strengthen every time we engage with nature, from hugging a tree in a local park to swimming under the waterfalls on the Havasupai Nation. My hike in the wilderness was the first time in my life that I felt that I truly belonged. Eli and Sarah represent a growing trend of people who love city life, want to work for nonprofits, but can't afford insane rents. Although it goes without saying, I'm going to say it anyway, van life is not for everyone. It helps if you know how to fix an engine, can wire a solar panel, and like living in very, very small spaces. I put a guide to van life on this episode's webpage. You should check it out. In strict ecological terms, resiliency is the ability to respond to a threat and recover quickly. In next week's show, I'll be talking to Laurie Barrickman, Lauren Martin, and her uncle Kenny, all survivors of the Sonoma wildfires that claimed the lives of 42 people, destroyed more than 6,000 homes, and caused billions of dollars in damage about their experience of the fires and what it feels like to be a climate refugee. Out of these ashes, an amazing story of human and natural resiliency emerged. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, editor Rob Spate, Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld, have an awesome week. Thank you.